the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 5. In Memoriam, November 2018. Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of our podcast. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this is the, well sorry Simon, this is the first of our second recording session. We've already done episodes one to four, uh, we did those a couple of months ago. So this this next podcast we're going to focus on, it's one of our In Memoriam episodes. Now we've lost quite a few distinguished actors over the past couple of months. It, it is a sad fact that um, because we're fans of TV programmes from 40, 50 years ago, the professionals that were involved with them are all getting to be quite elderly. So we're going to start off uh, looking at four actresses that, that we've sadly lost recently. Jacqueline Pierce, Liz Fraser, Fenella Fielding and Xenia Merton. And we'll be doing an episode from their output to memorialising them. But before we we do that, a um, little bit more housekeeping and uh, a couple of recommendations of other podcasts that I've, I've come across. Firstly, there is a new co- podcast called uh, The Perfect Night In, which is Neil Perryman describing Archive TV of one of his guests' ideal Saturday night in, uh, in watching the telly. They've only, only done one edition so far, but it's really entertaining. And for anybody who likes old telly programs, well worth a listen to. Um, Neil will be familiar for anybody from Doctor Who fan circles for the Wife in Space uh, series of books. The second one that I've come across is an American podcast called Anglophilia. And each episode looks at a classic British comedy show. So they've done Mr. Bean, they've done Faulty Towers, they've done Blackadder. They've finished their first season, um, so they've, there are six episodes of that available, well worth a listen to, um, very entertaining, and um, I think it's one of those podcasts where the presenters enjoy a drink or two as it's going along. On the subject of uh, which... Speaking of which... An uh, essential part of the Exton Moss experience uh, has always been trying new gins. Today, we, we have just poured our first gin. The fire is crackling away nicely in the background. So today we're... What have we got today? Today we are... The first one out of the bottle is Tanqueray Rangpur. Yes. And suddenly not long over the yard arm. Seems... I'm it's, not sure whether this is actually an Indian gin or just it's just got an Indian name. I think it's just got an Indian... A lot of them have just got, got the, an Indian name. But it's one of the Tanqueray gins and this one is infused with lime and it's lovely. There's a little bit of a sharpness to it. But it's really I, refreshing. I think that's probably because I put extra lime in it. But as gins go, uh, I'd have it. There's not many that I wouldn't have no, again. I've, I've had this before. It, yeah, I, I, can, I can see by the state of the bottle. It's no, that, <laughs> that, That's just rude and that, not what anybody needed to know about. Um, but yeah, I've, I've tipped up with only a little bit left in the bottle because I have been enjoying it over the last couple of weeks. And it's lovely. It's really light and refreshing. Mm. And... Works well, perfectly with tonic. And if we're going to do this, then we should have a scale, really, if we're going to do it. So I'm going to give... I'm going to give this... Um, it'll be three out of five for this one for me. And if we're going to have a scale, we should have a unit. A unit. Three out of five somethings. Hmm. We'll think about that over the course of the, the next episode and come back to you. Yeah. With what we think the, the gin scale is going to be. I'm tempted to say three out of five junipers. Mm. With juniper as the as the unit for gin quality, but perhaps we need something a bit more archivey. So anyway, first first out of the. Uh, so I'd, I'd give uh, just oh, finish. Oh, I'd oh, give this a four. Yours I'd, a four. I'd say this is a solid four. We must we must keep a record of these. Um, yeah, because we're not OCD at all. No, not at all. No, that's definitely not Doctor Who fans OCD. So anyway, on with the first of the In Memoriam episodes, and uh, this one is a Blake 7 episode called Pressure Point from Series 2, um, to commemorate the passing of Jacqueline Pierce. God love the woman. Yeah, she was a, uh, a convention stalwart. Uh, there are a million convention stories about, um, about Jackie. 
I did you ever meet her? No, I didn't. Unfortunately, I, in passing, met her once, and she was just lovely. Every okay. interview I've ever seen, she's so she was really vibrant. I mean. You could tell the sort of person she was just from seeing interviews with her on television and, and uh, you know, on, on audio. It's a real shame. So I'm going to watch this with sort of semi-tears in my eyes, yeah. Serverlan. Um, we'll watch the episode and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll say a little bit more about her. I think that'll be... Yeah, and uh, I mean, she she is best known for playing Serverlan, but she played a lot of other roles as well. Um, she was uh, one of the... There's a, the Hammer starlet group um, in, back in the late 60s early 70s and of course she was in Dark Season the oh Dark, Dark Season Days. when I was at school that was um, two stories of three episodes yes, in memory serves it was. Um, and they were both really good they, they are um, a young Kate Winslet in that as I remember was um, and I thought about um, suggesting that as the in memoriam because it's a little less well known than the Blake Seven but to do it justice we should really do all six episodes mm. and she's only in the final three. She is. So we felt that that's worthy of an edition in its own right because it's that good. So we've chosen to go with what she's best known for, which is Blake Seven playing the wonderful villainess Servalan. Uh, for those of you who are unaware of Blake Seven, it was a BBC space opera from the late 70s um, featuring Gareth, Gareth Thomas. Thomas as Blake uh, who was a, a freedom fighter fighting against the um, Galactic Federation which was headed by Servalan played by Jacqueline Pierce. There were Jacqueline this she was only supposed to be in it might even have just been one episode and then I and think she's just so it. good in it. Okay the so the, the, we will villain. crack ahead with pressure point and get back to you afterwards. Cheers. Well, that was uh, Blake Seven Pressure Point from February 1979. We watched that as a memoriam to Jacqueline Pierce, who passed just a few weeks ago. Mm. What did you think? Um, as with all Blake Seven, I loved it. I came to Blake Seven the second time around when it was on UK Gold in the early 90s. I'd never seen it on its original transmission. Most of the main cast are okay. I think I've got to single out, though, apart from... Jacqueline Pierce, who you said halfway through that, acts everybody else off the screen, which she does. Uh, the standout performance has got to be Travis for being astronomically Awful. bad. Awful. And particularly when he's up against Jacqueline Pierce, uh, there is just no comparison at all. Um, there are a few reasons why we picked this episode. Um, firstly, it's the last episode where the original cast are all mm. together. Um, because it's the last episode to feature Gam. There are some wonderful scenes with Servalan being really quite vicious. And suddenly in the middle, she decides to change into a posh frock while um, there's all this... Yeah, with uh, a giant spangly gecko holding both of her breasts. Yeah, and the, the main control centre in Earth is under attack. They know that there are these... Um, these rebels that they've been chasing for the last couple of years or whatever turning up and she takes the time to get out of one spangly white outfit into another spangly white outfit she doesn't like she's get dressed ready to go to a wedding she always wears white I've forgotten all that I've not seen any of these for a long time um, the costumes in general the one thing that um, I get it stood out was there's a lot of rubber fetish suits in the Federa in the Federation there are the, oh, the, the, uh, the mutoids they're in Skin and Travis's. And Travis's. The, the others are. I mean, they're wearing ridiculous costumes. Avon, uh, not Avon, Villa as well. What, what is going a on? a weird orange thing that's wrapped around it. And that um, Callie and Jenna are wearing posh frocks as well. well Callie and Jenna are like an intergalactic version of ABBA. <laughs> they're, they're, they're one half. Um, 
But Villa is the only one I've noticed who plays it as if he's not deadly serious about it. And that was his character all the way through. He's the only one that's not taking every line deadly serious as a bit of... He's the only vestige of comic relief in the whole thing. The one thing that struck me right from the start, actually, is there's a big push at the minute for all this gender equality and mm. um, and boosting women in strong roles. This episode here is littered with strong women. It's the men who are the incidental weakling characters. Yeah, and actually, um, Blake's big plan is to send the, the four blokes to the surface to do the, the manly attacking the complex thing. And they all end up needing rescuing. And it's Jenna who does a solo mission and On captures Servalan and saves the day. All with in her, a frock and heels. Without getting the hair out of place. Sally Nivet got a bit of a thing for her. Had at the time and still do. Um, the sets are pretty good as well. They're not Space the 99. The Liberator set's all right. But they did... I don't know who the director was for this, but it the shot of George, the... Spenton George, Foster. George Spenton Foster, and written by Terry Nation. I think most of the... Well, all of the first series, and I don't know how many were written by Terry Nation, but the, the shot of the ladder and the corridor set was hideously overused. Just by changing a few light bulbs and the, the colour of the gel on the... It didn't really work for me. That was getting away with it on it, the cheek. It was a bit filler, and the, the monkey bars were obviously... Filler and mm. to remind people of school gym sessions. There are really well written betrayals in this, and the whole endpoint where they get to the the big control center. They don't know it at that point, but they're sacrificing a member of their crew to get there, and it turns out to be empty. And okay, the whole of the rest of season mm. two is finding where the real control is, but it's really nice that Blake leads them into this enormous trap that not all of them survive. Yeah, I mean, I do remember feeling that uh, there was a ripple after Gan died that he he never really got over in himself. Because season two, again, it's a long time since I've seen these, but I remember that the last episode of season two, I think it was called... Star One. Yeah. Is that the one where the Liberator just disintegrates? No, that's the end of season three. Right. Um, the end of season two is where they discover control and controls the only thing that's holding off a, an invasion fleet from outside the, uh, the galaxy. Um, so they have to stand up against the invasion fleet while the, um, the Federation forces are, are turning up. Now, the Liberator is very badly damaged <coughs> at the beginning of Season 3, and the first few episodes are where they, the crew that return in Season 3, because uh, Blake and Jenna are written out, mm. and it's where Villa, um, Callie, Avon, and the new regulars that they bring in are reunited just on that point, is um is he the first or second Travis? A second. Oh dear, so Stephen Grief was replaced by him, that makes it even worse. Yep. Oh dear. Have we any reason, do we know why Stephen Grief didn't come back? No, I, I, I got a, another job I assume, but mm. I don't really know. What a shame. Um, but no, Jacqueline Pierce, as with most really, she did steal the show with that one. Yes, absolutely. Acted pretty much everybody else off the screen. A, a wonderful, wonderful bitch slap. It was a it was a wonderful bitch slap. I mean, could you still get away with that? I don't, you could probably get, still get away with that. I don't think the uh, the reverse would be true. But the thing I don't think you'd get away with in this day and age is the um, the comment about all the churches being destroyed. I really can't imagine that being done in a sort of prime time audience thing. Mm. I think that would be red penned. There was a a gratuitous shot of her wearing nothing but a coat and tights all the way up to the crotch, which I thought was a bit near the knuckle. She was wearing nothing else apart from these tights. It was quite... Yeah, they were hot pants. She had little silvery hot pants on. Oh, the shot just made it look like they were tights all the way up to nothing. Right. I I know exactly the shot that you mean. um, Well, it's in the woodlands. It's as she walks walks forward in the woodlands. Hot pants. Modesty's covered. Her other... uh, the. Role that I've heard her in most recently is as um, Alistra, Cardinal Alistra in the War Doctor audios and the Time War audios. Oh, I've finished. heard good things about those. I'll, I'll have to have a listen. The War Doctor one in particular are very good, and she's in it as the the leader of the Time Lords that are working with the Doctor. So with John Hurt. With John Hurt. So they are well worth a listen. For, for several reasons now. The thing that always got me about that character is I'm fairly sure that if they'd played it out, she would have ended up being the general, uh, regenerating into the general that we see in Day of the Doctor. 
played by Ken Bones, because it's made explicit after that that it's the only time he's ever been a man, and he's never named. Oh, right. So, just my theory. Okay, well, I'll, I'll reserve, reserve judgment until I listen to them, but they're, they're ones I will have a listen to. Right, shall we move on we shall to move on, our so. next In Memoriam episode? Um, and this is commemorating the work of Liz Fraser, who was one of the carry-on team from the late 50s, early 60s. She was the first of their sort of blonde bombshells. And when I was reading about her, I found out that she was actually sacked from the carry-on team because she'd criticised the way that the films were publicised. And is it Peter Rogers who was the... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, didn't like that and sacked her and replaced with Barbara Windsor. So mm-hmm. she was the pre-Barbara Windsor, but she, I think she was in about nine or ten of them. Anyway, it's not one of the carry-on films that we're going to be watching, um, although it does feature another carry-on stalwart. Sid James was the lead character in a early 60s sitcom called Citizen James, and Liz Fraser played his fiance. Imaginatively, and their characters are imaginatively called Sid and Liz. Uh, and we're going to watch the pilot episode of Citizen James. And this is something I haven't seen before. Gosh, so I'm a new be, for you as well. Yeah, it'll be a, a new experience for both of us. So, Run VT. Well, that was the pilot episode of Citizen James from 1960, um, starring Sid James, Liz Fraser and Bill Kerr. And we watched it in uh, memorial of Liz Fraser, who died a few weeks ago. Yeah, the first thing that struck me was it's quite, the opening to it was quite American in style, insofar as, as each actor walked on or entered the scene, the audience were instructed to clap. Now that's... It's a very American style of uh, of welcoming a star on stage, which we, we never, thankfully, we never adopted much of here. But, uh, but Sid James, you know what you're going to get. He's exactly the same in every role. Yeah. And to be fair, so is Bill Kerr, because mm. he was dumb Australian counterpart to Hancock and he's dumb Australian counterpart to Sid James. What's notable about this is that they all use the real names. Now, Sid James, oh. that's nothing. it's nothing unusual for his character to be called Sid. But, but they it's are. Sid James Sid and Liz Fraser and, and Bill Kerr. It feels odd. I don't know whether that's just me. Although wasn't his character in Hancock called Bill? I don't know. I don't know whether it was using his full real name. No, the most unbelievable thing about about this is Sid James being engaged to um, Liz, Liz Fraser, Fraser for for seven years and <clears throat> her being the one that, that's pushing it forward. It just seems... Yeah, she could do plot, a lot of that. Uh, Plot-driven rather yeah. than reality-driven. It was nothing particularly spectacular. It was a perfectly standard piece of 1960s comedy. It doesn't inspire me to watch any further episodes. Although, but, as you uh, pointed out, there's a lot of location work filming. There's some stock footage in there, but there was there was a fair amount of location footage. Yeah, but which, all, all at the same location, all at the, uh, the running track. Um, but they did some on, well, wherever that is... Carnaby Street or some high streets or something. On the credits, that's stock footage. Yeah. No, but the the opening credits they were they were actually on location for that. Mm. Um, I also noticed that Howard from Last of the Summer Wine put in a guest appearance, and we had our second wobbly set of the day, and it was spectacularly wobbly. Following John Persway rattling an entire church wall <laughs> in the Demons. Um, mm. Yeah, we've got a, a Sid James. Smashing a door shut in the cafe set and uh, Charlie's nosh bar. Charlie's <laughs> nosh bar. <laughs> um, wobbling the set, but uh, no, I, I can't say that I would be bursting to watch anything more. How long did this run for? Do we know? Three years. Really? Oh, I can only think that it improved. It's a, a real p- pity that a very large chunk of the um, run of this exists, and only three episodes of Our House exist, mm. um, which is another carry-on spin-off. And the ones that I've seen were much better than this. But that that's the nature of the, the archives. Unfortunately. 
Well, coming up next, our next episode is an episode of The Avengers from Series 3 called The Charmers. And we're watching this in memoriam of another carry-on stalwart, um, Fenella Fielding, who is best known for carry-on screaming. I think she's from a theatrical family. She is. I read a bio of her on the BBC Mm. news page the day after she died. And she came across as quite... Not bitter, but it really rankled her that she never really shook off the carry-on. But she was predominantly a stage actress. She was, and reading through it, she did an awful lot of work, a work that I'd never even... uh, I didn't even know she'd done. I actually met Fenella Fielding. Um, Oh, you must have been in your element. I I kind of was. I was working for... um, a chain of restaurants at the time, going uh, round the training them, ha- training the new members of staff how to use the the new till systems that they were putting in. And the rest, one of the chains of restaurants that, uh, or one of the restaurants I went to in the chain was somewhere in in central London, and I had to turn up in my suit and tie, and I, I looked like a manager. And Fenella Fielding was there and vamped it up for all she was worth. She was utterly charming and theatrical. I imagine because she thought she'd get freebies by charming the manager. And then she realised that I wasn't the manager. And she was still utterly charming and utterly theatrical. She was an absolute joy to talk to. Um, difficult to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> but that that's part of the whole theatricality. But I... Oh dear. She was... The, this was in the afternoon. And I, I, I tended not to have very much to do in the afternoon because the, the busy times were obviously the, the mealtime rushes. And this, this must have been quite a... A show busy area because Rory McGrath was in the the restaurant at the same time. I didn't actually talk to him, but I, I, having been a big fan of Who Dares Wins, recognised him from a distance. Um, but Fenella Fielding looked dramatic, dressed up to the nines, incredibly entertaining. It's one of the few times that I'll be able to to talk about actors or actresses that I've actually met outside of convention stuff. But she was a lovely woman to talk to. Well, let's see uh, how entertained we are with the Avengers. So this is The Charmers from... From season three, which would be 1962. Um, it was when uh, Honor Blackman was the, um, the counterpart to John Steed as a regular, coming up towards her t- the, the end of her time on The Avengers. And it features Warren Mitchell as one of the very few returning characters other than the, the regulars. Uh, well, without further ado then, we shall uh, cue the tape and we'll be back in a second with the commentary. That was the Avengers The Charmer from Series 3. I haven't seen any of the Black and White Avengers. I was quite surprised. Not even any of the Dino Rigs? No. No, I've only ever seen the the colour ones. And the difference between the colour ones and the Black and White ones is quite striking. Yeah, and this is getting towards the end of um, Honor Blackman's time as Kathy Gale. So she only had two more episodes before she left to become a Bond girl. Having said that, it is made in 1960. So you got to uh, have to. This is sixty-two. Sixty-two. I think. So uh, a, this is season three. So I have to look at it. Anyway. Production values of the time. What I what I noticed about this is because it's coming to the end of the the Kathy Gale era, there's slightly more ridiculous and fantasy-ish elements that were are really what we know the Avengers for now. Yeah. They, they came in more into it in the Dana Rigg and Linda Thornton era are starting to show up on this. So it's the the army of men in bowler hats and the, the charm school and all, all the slightly ridiculous elements that weren't there right at the start. It was, it was more a sort of fairly straight spy drama, certainly in the first season. Mm. And in fact, they, uh, this was such a successful episode that it was remade um, in the Diana Regera as the correct way to kill. Sort of essentially word for word, or the, the uh, story. No, no, or... There was one quite significant change in that in this episode, the character that 
Fenella Fielding plays. And they, the plot of this ep- episode is somebody is killing um, spies from both sides of the, uh, the East-West Divide. And Steed teams up with the, the Soviet spy team run by Keller, played by Warren Mitchell. And they agree to swap agents. So Kathy Gale goes to work with a, uh, a Russian agent. The Russians give Steed an agent to work with, who is Kim Lawrence, mm-hmm. character played by Fenella Fielding, who turned out to be an actress who was just hired for the, the job, thinking that Steed was an eccentric writer. And the, the character that Fenella Fielding plays in uh, when it's remade as the correct way to kill is actually a, a Russian agent. So there, there's none of the sort of parachuting in an actress who mm-hmm. doesn't really know what she's doing. Although she does kind of hold her own and sort of is the, the one who saves the day at the end by throwing a sword at, at Warren Mitchell in a slightly sort of comic Cod way. way yeah. Uh, it's the only worthy scene that she gets. She's just She has no real function throughout the entire thing, I'm sorry to say. Um, well, she's there to look decorative. She mm-hmm. She's very, very good at the, um, the arch facial movements. Yes. Um, and the one-liners. Uh, the one the one liners are good, and the whole confusion about how she's talking about her her family background and how she's been in the business for mm. for generations. Steed thinking it's the spy business, her describing it as the the acting business that that works very well. Mm. Actually, I think she has more than that that final scene because the the one where she's helping him what she thinks come up with the plot, but she actually gives him the the clue that solves the whole thing about the noticing the address label to a, yeah. to a dentist. So she, she has a little bit more to do than that, but she she puts in a, a good, credible performance yes. in a character who, yeah. to be fair, isn't it's given a massive Two-dimensional. It is the day of the wobbly set, though. Now, no, whether, this one actually collapsed. This did. And now, whether by accident or design, I suspect accident, an entire door fell off during a fight scene. Everything we've watched today has had an element of wobbly set in it. So let's see if the trend continues. What's up next? Well, there was just one other thing I was going to say about this that oh. struck me as we, as we were going through. There was a ridiculous bit in the middle where they, uh, the female agent, um, as part of the charm school, in her first scene wears a ridiculous mask for no reason whatsoever. And they, they mention it and they say, oh, it's to stop people being distracted by her attractiveness, blah, blah, blah. And that, and that happens for one scene. It's completely ignored later. And it's obviously there as a, a writing piece to, to keep the identity of the female a, agent a mystery. But it's not that big a mystery as there's been a grand total of one mm-hmm. female char- other female character introduced in the entire plot um, who acted in a, who's the dentist receptionist who acted in an unbelievably suspicious way and might as well have had villain tattooed across her forehead. So. Yeah, Vivian Pickles has yeah. said in there. So we need to look this uh, woman we, up and we see do, what else. She's quite familiar looking, but I, I don't know from mm. what. Um, there wasn't a great deal of subtlety in that episode, but it was quite fun. Not what I was expecting, if I'm honest, from the Avengers. Um, but I think the if Avengers... You, if I've you're gone. only used to the, the later stuff, mm. then... Um, and we can watch, at another time, some early Avengers. And some of the certainly some of the first series stuff is quite gritty. Mm. So quite different. Oh, yeah. Very, mm. very different. And once Kathy Gale moves on, then it, it becomes much more jokey and lighthearted. And you're starting to see elements of that with, with this particular episode. Okay, so the next thing that we're going to watch is an episode of Space 1999. And this is in tribute to Xenia Merton, who played Sandra Bennis in Space 1999. The thing that she's probably best known for is Ping Cho in the Marco Polo, Marco Polo um, which I know you're a big, big fan I am. Of. I love Marco Polo, yes. I'm less of a fan, but I just think it's a bit overlong. It, Marco Polo is its one of those seven-part... I mean, seven-part Doctor Whos, on the whole, don't tend to drag. I can't think of one. Oh, Ambassadors of Death does. Ah, to be fair, yeah. I've only really seen that once. Yeah, not one that I'd, be, I'd care to revisit, but... Um, I mean, you're actually looking at a grand total of four stories to compare. Aren't you? It is really, having thought about it, yes. And the Silurians and Inferno are superb stories. Mm. Marco Polo, it's, it's kind of unfair to judge because we don't have it to see. Mm. Uh, the, from the, the production pictures, it looks gorgeous. I suspect that it will... And the audio, I think, drags on a bit. And in terms of 
recovery of a historical. It'd be ni- nice to get an entire seven episodes back and it would be nice to have a, another complete Hartnell historical. Um, but I'd be much more interested in seeing the massacre. Oh, the massacre, yes. Um, all the smugglers. Smugglers always thought looked fun. Anyway, we're getting away from the point. Uh, it's uh, Space 1999 we're going to watch. An episode called The Beta Cloud. Um, it's season two episode. And I've chosen this because although she's a secondary character in it, and this is one of the episodes where uh, the character Sandra Bennis gets a little bit more to do than just basically answer the phone. So we'll move on to that and see you in a minute. Well, that was Space 1999, the Beta Cloud, um, that we saw in memoriam for Xenia Merton. And we chose that episode because it's one of the ones where her character, Sandra Bennis, has more to do than just simple communication. That was where she had more to do. Oh, yes. Yeah, she doesn't usually do very much. She didn't do much in that. She did the whole electronics thing. Well, she fiddled with a few buttons and told them some obvious exposition, but that's about it. Good grief. In comparison with the pilot episode that we watched last time, I'm less impressed. Season two doesn't have a good reputation. Um, People criticised Doctor Who for being set in corridors. That was completely in corridors. Mm. And almost no characters in it. There's, what, half a dozen in Mission Control, another couple in the medical base, and a few random security guards. Well, Martin Landau's hardly in it. He must have been having a week off. Barbara Bain disappears 20 minutes in, in soft focus. Oh, she's constantly in soft focus. In fact, the episode looks fantastic. It's been beautifully cleaned up, except for the the scenes that have Barbara Bain in, because it's like she's got her own personal fog machine. (laughs) Because all of her scenes are in soft focus. The one thing I'll say in its favour, it's very, very heavy, this episode on Catherine Schell. That's made up for the dire quality of a lot of the rest of it. The All the aliens are fluffy. Yeah. Any alien Shaggy was... Shaggy hair, big glittery eyes and claws. Quite disappointing. Because on the whole, I mean, although it's a step down from the set... Bear in mind, I've never seen Space 1999. It's not something I've ever really watched. The, the, to be fair, this isn't an episode I would use to encourage anybody to watch the series. Well, no, it was more the fact that the pilot that we watched, they clearly spent a lot of money yeah. on it. The sets for this are scaled back massively. They're still good, but the, the massively scaled back. And to be honest, this is an episode I haven't watched in, in years. Because if I watch any Space 1999, I will generally always pick one of the first season ones because they look better. They've got Barry Mawson, who I prefer as a character, to Catherine Shell's character. I generally find them more entertaining. I mean, you'll know the character names. Catherine Shell's character and... Maya. And the other fellow who's been in bed at the end. Tony Videshi. Yeah. Both of whom are crowbars in for year two. In a moment of panic, he declares his undying love for her. And then after the adventure's over and the cloud mysteriously just disperses without any real explanation because they've managed to destroy a robot with a bee, he then decides, actually, Catherine Shell, not that fond of you after all. And then there's a reveal at the end that he's just doing it. It's madness. Yeah, and then she storms out and he goes, oh, yeah, she's crazy about me after all, without the obvious corollary that you've just completely screwed it up. You've buggered that up, mate. Yeah. Again, well, well done for finding that out. Minus several million for the way you've done it. Clearly you are Captain Subtle, or whatever you like to think you are, but you have just completely buggered it up. There was, there, I mean, there's some very dodgy science in that. Oh, there is right the way through. It's based 1999. The, the less said about the science, the better. Um, <laughs> they had the, tranquilizers on the base that were too strong for humans, but there's no noticeable yeah. animals about. The, uh, a moon base that has 300 people on it 
why would you have tranquilizers that are too strong for humans? Do they, do they have a colony of elephants that we don't know about? Well, also, there's a hydroponic centre that they can flood with chlorine. Actually, uh, I thought about that. It's an experimental hydroponic centre, and if you really screw up your genetic engineering and make a triffid, then you may want to flood the entire room with chlorine and zap it. So that is kind of shoe-bar-inable. But the fact that she, uh, Maya can turn into a chlorine-breathing alien and then stand in the corridor where there's no chlorine and not be affected. Oh, you already covered his mouth, so that's okay. Well, yes, yeah. Chlorine-breathing aliens clearly don't need to actually breathe. There's some very, very obvious exposition dialogue, which let it down a little bit, uh, particularly from Xenia Merton. I'm a poor, poor woman. That, that's your role in this, to give o- obvious exposition to characters that really should be scientifically more aware than this and could probably be explained to better with the audience still understanding. Maybe I'm just nitpicking too far, but well, that, no, that, that was just of a much lower standard than the first one we watched. Yeah, it, it's not a great episode. I picked it because it's one where she does a bit more than, than normal. And were Marco Polo available, we'd have watched that. Oh, I can live with that then. Because the, the other thing that she's known for, she's the registrar in uh, the marriage of Sarah Jane Smith, but... And she has almost no screen time for that. So. Right, it's time for another one of our Memoriam episodes. This time it's Zed Cars, the team from 1972. This uh, is to commemorate Jeffrey Hayes, who died very recently. Best known really for his role as presenter of Rainbow for 20 odd years. Um, this is one of his straight acting roles. One of his very few, but he did play one of the um, regulars on Zed Cars. Yes, in the early seventies. So we've chosen an episode from nineteen from September nineteen seventy two, second episode of the eighth season called The Team, and this is in memoriam of Jeffrey Hayes. <laughs> Okay, well, that was not what I was expecting again. Uh, I've never seen any of the Colour Z cars. In fact, you've just informed me that uh, it ran for an awful lot longer than I expected it finished. It ran from... 62 to 78, with a couple of years gap in the sort of around 66, 67. I don't think I've seen a Colour Z car since it was first transmitted, so I don't have particularly strong or clear memories of it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't have remembered anything as early as this. I wasn't really sure what to expect, and I quite enjoyed it. It was it was slow. There was an awful lot of exposition mm. among the characters, but there were good, strong performances from from everybody. A couple of accent slippages, uh, just a slight, yeah. Well, they couldn't decide whether they were north or south or in between. Yeah. And I have to say, Jeffrey Hayes was one of those. Mm. He started off with quite a broad northern accent and it became more received as the episode went along. And the other one was a character of a bank teller who was played by the actor who played Damon in... In Ark of Infinity. Was. And this was kind of the opposite because he was trying to be posh, but the, um, the Durham accent slipped out it, occasionally. It was a nice mix of characters, I thought. Although, as you say, very slow, very... But it was a harmless bit of TV. The only thing I, I didn't like was the theme tune. Now, I'm far more familiar with the 60s version of yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. And this didn't have anything like the, the life to it or... It, it, it just seemed very, very watered down. I'm, I'm just surprised it, it got commissioned as a replacement, to be honest. It seemed like it was just tacked on because, as you say, they brought it back and felt they should do something different with it. But uh, the the original theme was much better. I'm, I'm sure if Andy and Lisa from around the archives are listening to this, they're big fans of Zed Cars, so they'll be able to put us straight on I'm exactly what the, the, the <laughs> chapter and verse on the, the theme tune is. Um, another interesting thing, it was directed by Julia Smith. The, the guy right behind EastEnders. And she did a pretty good job of it. I was surprised by how much location filming there was. Mm. Again, I love all this stuff that's on the high street in the 70s and 80s and 60s, well, 60s for that matter. It's just a window into a bygone era. And nothing really encapsulates it like the high streets, the shops and the changing logos. and So I love all that. The chasmic difference between how... Banks were run then, and it's only 45 years ago, and how they're run now uh, in terms of security. Um, yes, yeah. A, a little pad bolt uh, on the door. 
Yeah, uh, it's not even a door, is it? It's a, a, a security chain on the front door. The tiniest little deadlock on the change drawer on yeah. the Close the door, lad. Close the, the door. They didn't notice until the end of the day. It had mm. been open all day. But like I say, reflects different times. Um, the last of our Memoriam episodes is uh, from Sapphire and Steel. This one is from Adventure 4. That's to commemorate Sean O'Riordan. Now, remind me, have you ever seen any Sapphire and Steel? I've seen bits of it. I've seen the first adventure and the one on the railway station. Right, okay. This is we, The one that we've chosen is the fourth adventure. To my mind, it's about the best one. It's four episodes, and it's really tightly contained within four episodes. I think as a plot, the railway station one has the slight edge. But because it's dragged out over as many episodes as it is, it really slows it down. This is story four, which is given the fan title, The Man Without a Face, keeps things a lot tighter. So I'll have a watch of that. This is in memoriam of Sean O'Riordan, who was the producer of Sapphire and Steel, and who died very recently. All irregularities will be handled by the forces controlling each dimension. Transuranic heavy elements may not be used where there is life. Medium atomic weights are available. Gold, lead, copper, jet, diamond, radium, sapphire, silver and steel. Sapphire and steel have been assigned. Well, we're currently two episodes in to story four of Sapphire and Steel. Just thought we'd take a little uh, recording break. Simon's just asked me what I think so far, because I've never seen this one before. I love it, and I think that it's really well done, and the acting is superb from Joanna Lumley and uh, David McCallum. The one thing that I can't get over, it was ever made in the first place, because it's so surreal for a prime time programme. Were there six stories? Six stories in total. I'm just surprised it was ever made. It's, it's wonderful stuff, I'm just surprised. I love Stefan Steele. Um, I have watched each story over and over and over again. This, this one in particular, and the fifth one, I can watch endlessly. Um, and I've probably seen this story more than I've seen the vast majority of Doctor Who stories. There's, there's maybe half a dozen that I've seen more than this. Um, it does everything right. Uh, it is atmospheric. The two leads are just actors absolutely on the top of their game. These special effects are minimal, but very effectively used. The makeup for the, the children in all those sepia tones looks like they come yeah. from a, a photograph, just works perfectly. The secondary cast is very secondary very much in the background mm. and and there to bounce off they get a little bit more important as the, as the story goes on we're two episodes in and the short episodes mm. but really all it's been if we're honest is the two leads yeah even um Liz Liz in the wig she's only fluff and she's only really been a couple of scenes for any mm. decent length of time those two actors are carrying the entire series. Liz does get to be more important as the story goes along. The protagonist, as a as a physical form, is fairly incidental, to be honest. Mm. And it's very creepy, though. That well, the, the, the thing without a face, you can see exactly where they. Because um, you've said none of them have be, actually got story titles. They just no, the fan attributed titles. Yeah, let's be kind and say the idiot's lantern was inspired by this. <laughs> Because there isn't any doubt that it's exactly the same special effect, but works brilliantly, creepily in in both. Mm. I'm really it's enjoying this. Absolutely so far, yeah. magical piece of television. Yeah. Um, Sapphire. I've always said Sapphire and Steel is one of three TV series that I prefer watching to Doctor Who. The other two being well, four if you include the Corridor People. Oh, for because God's I sake! I love the Corridor People, but I know you're not a fan. Um, the other we two- have mentioned that for those of you that have heard previous podcasts we have mentioned the corridor people or i have and we'll be mentioning it a lot more uh, we'll get them out of the way all in one chunk you never you're never allowed to moratorium on those um the one thing i do love about this and we've mentioned theme music quite a lot throughout the podcast doctor who remains my number one theme tune i just love all well most of the iterations of it mm. um we've done zed cars previous today yeah with a pretty poor rendition of its own theme 
This, Sapphire and Steel, it's very evocative. And I love the title sequence. Mm. Absolutely love the title sequence. Yeah, there are some theme tunes that just absolutely grab you by the hindbrain as soon as you hear them. This is one, Doctor Who's another. The original Star Trek is one. Yes, I'll give you that, yep. Can't think of any others off the top of my head. Oh, the the first series, Space 1999. Yes, the Uh, first version was much better than the the completely different theme. And UFO. Uh, We haven't done the UFO yet. No, yet, no. A theme tune, particularly something like this, you should get the tingle. There should be the tingle down the back. I get it with this. It's the hairs on the back of the neck going, ding, 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 ding. And just to finally answer your question, the other two uh, series are Doomwatch, which I absolutely love, and The Omega Factor. Neither of which I've seen, I'm sorry to say. Um, We'll do both at some point. Doomwatch, I know, has been done again since. and uh, Um, Doomwatch, uh, there was the original three series, two of which were Jerry Davis and Kit Peddler, um, and then they left ahead of the third series. It's got quite a good survivability for an early 70s series. The entirety of the second series exists, about half the first series or just over. And I think three episodes from the third series, including the untransmitted one. Mm -hmm. There was a remake film which isn't terribly good and there was a film made at the time which is pretty good uh, but we, we can do some doom watch the omega factor is a wonderful piece of television really good audios done by big finish uh, they've just done i think their fourth season and every single one of them is superb louise jameson is this a compliment for big finish I, I have compliments for Big Finish. Um, they have done some things that I think are absolutely wonderful. I think with their Doctor Who line, their writing team is stretched to put out the the output that mm. they have, and, and that shows in the quality. But they have done some absolutely superb non-Who stuff. I mean, they've done some superb Who stuff. I can listen to The Sandman any number of times. I love Chimes of Midnight. Mm. Uh, I know you listen to that every Christmas. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's one of my, my favourites. The Wormery I love. Um, oh, The Wormery. The uh, Master um, Genocide Machine. I love The Genocide Machine. Storm Warning. Storm Warning is, is good. And Neverland, have you heard that? I have. I wasn't wildly keen. It's okay, but nothing special. There are some of the non-Who stuff they've done, which I adore, and the Omega Factor is one of those. Um, The Tomorrow People, they did such a good job of bringing back the Tomorrow People, and they lost their license before they were about to transmit. Series 6, I think, is entirely recorded and edited. It's ready. It's just never been heard. And it is such a pity because they were brilliant. And actually, one of the uh, and the the early seasons of Survivors are pretty good, and the underlying theme running through pretty much all of this is Louise Jameson. Not just in terms of acting, but she's writing some of their shows now. Um, she's written quite a few of the the Survivors stories, and she is a cracking good act, a cracking good actress, but a cracking good writer as well. I'll search out some of the Survivors I've got at home. I'll, I will definitely lend you the Omega Factor after we watch the Omega Factor. So there's a spoiler for you. We will be doing the Omega Factor. We're planning ahead years in advance here. Omega Factor isn't going to be years in advance. <laughs> but it's onwards with episodes uh, three and four of Sapphire and Steel. So we'll be back in a moment. Absolutely. Well, we've just finished episode three. And for anybody who's concerned about spoilers for this series, then stop listening now because we're going to talk about the details of the episode. The plot of this story is about an alien intelligence that's able to move through photographs, take people into photographs, take people out of photographs. And before the action starts, he puts two people into a particular photograph. At the end of episode three, Sapphire and Seal have been able to communicate with the woman who's been put into the photograph. And while they're talking to her, trying to find out how that happened, the alien intelligence has got hold of the original photograph and burnt it. So you hear this, and all of this is done largely just by looking at a still photograph on the screen. It's done by voice acting, and it is so effective. It's one of the most horrific death scenes in any yeah. TV series. As you've said, I mean, you've pointed out 
And it's a good job you have pointed it out because I've not noticed there are virtually no special effects. It is all done with cuts and fades. There's very little in the way of what you would class as special effects. That ending was horrible. Now, you were saying that this was on after... After the Krypton Factor, I think. So you're talking Um, about 7 o'clock. Certainly it was a sort of 7, 8 o'clock. I would have been... This was 81, so I'd have been 12 and... My parents had no problem with me just watching this. The end of episode, that was horrible. Yes. Yeah. Essentially, you're watching a woman burn alive and hearing it while it happens. Yeah. And it's all done with two still photographs. It is a phenomenal piece of television. That really is the only reason we've paused to comment on this, because it's we're both... Well, I'm certainly stunned by it because I've never seen it before. Simon has said it many I, times before, but it, it, it doesn't seem to diminish for you. No, absolutely not. It, it This is a part, um, but quite a big part of why I think this is such an effective and brilliant piece of television. And when we were first start, starting talking about this podcast, we were actually debating whether to just do the, uh, the first episode mm. because you were conscious of the time constraints. And my attitude was, no, we need to see all four episodes. And I'm really glad we you did. You need yeah. to see this in its entirety. But it's not been a good episode in other ways. There was one where Liz came through the door and you got one of the sepia children crying. She runs to hug this little boy. And it just, he and just he fades into dust. She yeah. kills a little boy without... Well, he's not a, alive in the first place. No, no, but she, it's the fact that this little boy just crumbles into dust in yeah. front of us. It's horrible. Oh, yeah. That, but beautifully done with such simple, is, simple effects. It is superb television. But if you think about it, it has some really, really horrible bits to it. We're about to and see it, the, the it, final episode. I can't yeah. imagine it gets any better. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. But I will just say, it's no big surprise to anybody that we're working our way through the Quatermass stories and we're about to do Quatermass 2. Quatermass 2 has off-screen possibly the most horrible death scene I've ever seen on television. Far worse than this. So you have that to look forward to. Marvellous. Shall shall we get back to the Sapphire and Steve? (sighs) Roll the tape. Episode 4. Well, there we have it. Sapphire and Steel, story four. End of the story. I love it. What do you think? Again, it's another very, very basic special effects, but it's the sound. Oh, half the episode is an empty room with a photo in it, and David McCallum and Joanna Lumley just voice acting their socks off. And the whatever he was... The the scream at the end just looped and reverberated and repeated on itself. Yeah, the sound engineering on it is just wonderful. If the sound engineering wasn't as good as it is, then the story would just fall it absolutely work. flat. So yeah, uh, all in all, and um, lovely, and uh, yes, hats off to the producer for. It's one of my all time favourite pieces of television. I absolutely love that. So on that very positive note, um, we'd like to. Say tribute to everybody that we've been in memoriam this evening. So that is Jacqueline Pierce, Liz Fraser, Vanilla Fielding, Xenia Merton, Jeffrey Hayes, and finally Shauna Reardon. Thanks for listening. And thanks for the TV, guys. The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.